Welcome to Biota Live. I'm Tom Barbelay, and this is another one of these Skype-recorded Biota Lives that we seem to be doing currently. It's being recorded on November 20th, 2010. Well, I have a few bits and pieces of news and notes, but I'd like to welcome on Gerald de Jong, first and foremost. Hello, Gerald. Hey there, Tom. So the last time we chatted was in February, and quite timely it was with regards to an artificial life community forum or portal, which I launched yesterday. Uh, the site is freshsim.org, and I'd like to thank in particular Miro Karpish and Tim Pickup and also Larry Yeager for their particular assistance. We did have a small additional team, but I think those three in particular have been very active in terms of uh, forming the forum and also the initial direction that the forum has taken. Uh, but for folks who are interested, go to freshsim.org and uh, check it out. Get Create a user account, start populating it with your own artificial life-related musing. If you have any questions, if you would like to recommend any projects, it's there for open discussion. Gerald, have you had a chance to look at FreshSim? Oh, yes, I got signed up right away. It looks really good. I was impressed. Terrific. Yeah, Tim Pickup's artwork in particular, I think, is very striking. He originally oh, yeah, started I... with some, uh, some pencil sketches, and I thought initially this is, this is looking very abstract artesque, and then he did uh, full 3D renderings of the, the lizard creature with the single eye, and it really has captivated, I think, all of those that were working on the, the site initially. A very it's visually the, it's striking. a perfect, uh, perfect image for the, for the purpose. I, I love the uh, one-eyed lizard. Yes, I, I actually said to him that if he was interested, I'm sure he could uh, get various artificial life developers to create an artificial life simulation around the one-eyed lizard. And certainly for folks listening in, if you're interested in using that artwork for your own simulation, uh, Tim is more than uh, more than happy for anyone actually to pick up that artwork. I think he has a, a 3D version of it with a skeletal underlying form. Uh, but yeah, very, very visually striking, and hats off in particular to, to Tim for the uh, visual imagery. The other bits of news that I wanted to put out there is uh, following some discussion with a fellow called Kevin O'Connor, who has worked in the past with Bruce Domer, I decided to collate... Well, I originally was going to do the first 50 Biota Lives, and the project has kind of expanded since I started. So the most recent one uh, that I've had passed through was Jeff Kloon's discussion on Biota Live in June. I'm sad to say probably only three or four episodes prior to this one. Uh, but it looks like the Biota transcripts are going to be a, a multi-volume set. I'm going to cap each of the volumes at about 60,000 words. And for the discussion that Jeff and I had, that was 10,000 words in an hour, a relatively dense 10,000 words. But, uh, Gerald, you've, you've given your, uh, your thumbs up to participating in this project as well. Yeah, well, if, if uh, I guess the uh, the advantage of it is that it makes it searchable. Um, as far as I'm concerned, I enjoy the podcasts. I just uh, like to listen to it while I'm on my bike, so I don't necessarily uh, expect to be reading it, but I guess it's a good way to find things from the outside. Yeah, I think there's certainly a good portion of the academic community that hasn't yet really embraced the podcast phenomenon. I certainly found that getting CDs out to, I think, Artificial Life 11 or Artificial Life 12, there was initial uptake, but certainly not as large as I imagined, and I think still the academic community is very print-based. The thing that I found fascinating, actually, reading through it, is obviously with, with slight tweaks, particularly for my own speech impediments, uh, but one, once those are removed from the text, it actually reads quite well. So I, I know you had some initial concerns that the signal-to-noise ratio might be, uh, might be a little low, but I think currently... There's just nothing really out there in, in written form that is like what we do in Biota Live. And really, my hope is that this text will, will find the, the form that we've created through all these Biota Lives and uh, pass it on to a, a new audience. The other thing that I want to do through this, and I've had kind of ongoing discussions, List One, for example, when we talked about Publish or Perish and Biota Live Feed, about the problems associated with just the immense cost associated with academic publishing currently, and I had considered going with academic publishers. I had actually had some discussion with, uh, with an academic publisher about putting the transcripts out through them. But I think the, the cheaper option is just through ebook and self-publication. So they will be released probably under $10 per volume, uh, probably closer to $7 with a bit of luck. 
and the e-books will be certainly cheaper than that, with the view that this may appeal to you know, a wide variety of the students that are looking to study artificial life or currently studying artificial life. And I think also what I'll do with the volumes is group them into sections. For example, I mean, folks who listen to this podcast frequently will be well aware of the Evo grid-related discussion that's been ongoing since pretty well the first podcast. So I think there are probably at least two volumes worth of Evo grid-related discussion. Similarly, there's a lot of philosophy of biology and a lot of just playing grassroots kind of hobbyist artificial life, how to develop an artificial life simulation, open source, these kind of things. So there is almost a natural group in which I think will find its way through the volumes with the view that uh, folks who have particular interests, if they're particularly EvoGrid-centric, for example, could pick up the EvoGrid volumes if you're interested in the philosophy of artificial life and the broader philosophy that artificial life touches on. There'll probably be a couple of volumes for you. And if you're a hobbyist looking to uh, read about how, uh, for example, artificial life and game development or setting up a project or the benefits of open source with artificial life development, all these things will probably be covered in another volume. But uh, it's an interesting form. It's going to take a lot of time just going through the Jeff Clune uh, text alone is it takes roughly probably three times the recorded uh, audio link to go through and edit it and then everyone uh, Gerald included will be receiving their own transcripts to go through with a fine tooth comb to try and make sense out of various paragraphs too uh, but it's going to be an interesting project one that's going to be going into next year and my hope is depending on how long it will actually take to get the revisions back in this kind of time frame that probably a March next year time frame will be when the first volume is released but it could happen earlier it just depends on how long people take to to go through the transcripts I have heard of a new Dick Gordon book project that's come out, and I did circulate an email associated with this for various folks in the artificial life community that already have uh, interests. My recollection is it's the origin of mind, and this follows in the origin of... of, uh, I think we started with life, then we went to design, now we're going into mind. I'm not really sure what comes after mind, Gerald, in the the general spectrum of these things. Um, Do any of these books interest you? Oh yeah, well, these uh, sounds interesting. Uh, they're, are they also uh, anthologies of uh, many authors? My understanding is that uh, they are typically thirty to fifty authors. I'm not really sure. It's being published through Springer. I've not seen really, really thick Springer books previously. I mean, Springer has a very well-defined form, particularly with their artificial life and related uh, publications. So I'm not sure whether they're going to. Uh, be a new format for Springer, or whether the, uh, I don't know, the standard Dick Gordon book format, which is typically a thousand pages plus, will be used in, in the Springer format here. But uh, my recollection is that there's about, I've only seen the origin of design. They seem to be being done out of order. I mean, Dick is probably listening to this, and he's been of poor health, and he was hospitalized for a period of time. So shout-outs to Dick, and my hope is that he's recovering. Uh, but I think probably Dick's health has affected some of this. Uh, the anticipation is that there should be at least seven of these origin of books uh, when it's all wrapped up. I'm actually quite impressed by the speed at which they're being turned over. I've, I wrote two chapters. Uh, well, I wrote three chapters. I wrote an EvoGrid collaborative chapter with Bruce, uh, a chapter for the origin of uh, life and a chapter for the origin of design. And my hope is to also write a chapter for the origin of mind because it's something obviously that I've strong venting interests in uh, developing Noble Ape. So I, I don't really get a, a sense of the what they'll actually look like when they come out, aside from the fact that, the, yeah, there are at least 30 authors per volume. Now, that's a, a nice way to put together a book, of course, because you get a bunch of different opinions together, and, uh, and that's probably why it can come out so quickly, because you can just get these contributions. It takes some, some effort to coordinate them and... Uh, I guess uh, edit them and stuff, but uh, but still, you get thirty people writing in parallel, more or less, I suppose. Certainly, and there is some dialogue. I'm currently dialoguing on the origin of design book. I'm not sure if the uh, if the other books will have dialogue, but certainly through Liz Swan's involvement with the origin of design, she insisted that there would be dialogue, and I'm currently. Uh, writing correspondence with Steve Grant and a couple of other fascinating non-artificial life uh, authors, uh, one associated with uh, AIDS treatment in Africa and another one associated with the kind of meta-properties of design. Uh, but all very interesting stuff, and I think just the ability... I mean, obviously, within the artificial life community, we probably don't have enough authors to do all 30 contributions, and what tends to happen in these Dick Gordon Brook projects is there will be maybe two, three, or four of us 
that are writing in, in any given time. But my anticipation is probably that there will be at least another one or two coming out within the uh, next uh, couple of years. I mean, I don't know if there's going to be an origin of structure. There were some origin of the universe and various other th- topics that were floating around initially. Could you see yourself writing in one of these in the future? Yeah, perhaps. Uh, I w- it would have to be... Uh, my, things would have to slow down a little for me because I've been in a bit of a, a rapids the last while. But uh, I would like to... Uh, I, the, the one you just mentioned, the origin of structure, sounds like an interesting one for, for me because I'm uh, more interested in the in the three-dimensional uh, you know, world. And um, But, the, but uh, yeah, it would be an interesting project for sure. Truth be told, I think I actually just made up the origin of structure thinking... Oh, I, I know title. that. <laughs> I know, but it sounds like a good idea. <laughs> it does. Well, maybe we'll put that out to Dick, that maybe design was a bit too much of a loaded word and the origin of structure would actually give a... Uh, I guess a slightly more, I don't know, slightly more anonymous, slightly more artificial life-centric uh, discussion point. Although, truth be told, the origin of design, a lot of it is very uh, clinical, and there's an emerging field of design science, uh, which is actually quite interesting, and I think artificial life could have quite a bit to contribute to that, if nothing more just as a means of, uh, I guess, describing an abstract model of the biological sciences and really even elements of the non-biological sciences, which was some of my argument in the origin of design. But, Gerald, um, as I noted, it's, it's been many, many months since you were last on a Biot Live, February, in fact. I wanted to get you on around the launch of Tetragotchi, but that project is just moving from strength to strength. Since it's been February, could you give a kind of month-by-month introduction to the development of Tetragotchi up to the launch date, and then we'll talk a little bit more about it after the launch? Yeah, month by month is not all that uh, that interesting because there weren't that. Um, I, I I recorded some podcasts in that time, but I think I stopped around June as well. Uh, I, it, it's unfortunate, you know, that you can't uh, that, that I'm not able to find the time to keep it uh, keep the the flow going in in the podcasts and things like that. I'd like to pick that up again, but uh, my whole life sort of thir- went into a, a, a rapids recently uh, literally in the summer because I went on a nice trip with my son up in the north of Canada and uh, so we were we had a great trip uh, very far away from civilization up there and um, uh, so that that kept me away from all sorts of stuff too and at the meantime uh, while I was on that trip and and afterwards we set up a new company me with a couple of colleagues and uh, we're now uh, uh, working on that uh, quite intensely it's called delving and we're we're um, we're, we're busy in, uh, we're, we're serving organizations in the cultural heritage sector, which is a really interesting niche. And, um, working towards actually at one point uh, in the future, we've been talking about this quite a bit, uh, towards, um, a, a system that has some artificial life aspects to it because, um, one of the challenges that we have is the enrichment and the sort of alignment and, uh, uh, just uh, you know, connecting up of these cultural heritage objects, and um, we've got plans uh, brewing to uh, to have a system of uh, many agents that are that are doing these uh, these enrichments, and uh, in order to manage them and to have them uh, you know share the share the share the effort, uh, I expect that we will have some sort of metaphor of artificial artificial life in there. So that's uh, that's been taking up a lot of my time. It's called Delving uh, BV. It's just a, a, a company that we set up. Can we but then that for a minute, Gerald? Because that's absolutely fascinating. We, we can return to the Tetragotchi stuff. But the notion of uh, archiving or understanding archives of heritage objects and the artificial life principles associated with it seems almost akin to the stuff that Ed Salford talked about in terms of optimizing search, but with regards to very curious objects. Is that the way you're seeing a, a potential artificial life impact on the stuff that you're doing there as being, or do you see something else? That's probably similar to what I'm talking about because um, what, it, what it's all about more or less is, you know, managing resources. And, um, you know, artificial life is all about this this metaphor that uh, that things are consuming and surviving and uh, or, or perishing depending on whether they're, they're successful or not. And, and that kind of analogy makes a lot of sense when you're constructing a system of many, many little agents who are all chasing out their little destinies. And, uh, and you want to have some way of deciding which ones 
you know, deserve time to do some more work and, and which ones don't and stuff. So we're going to have um, a little sort of artificial life agents that uh, that that sniff around the, the, the data associated with these uh, these um, cultural uh, artifacts and uh, try to make connections among them and stuff. And I imagine, for example, <clears throat> you know, the 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 scenario in which uh, one of these agents is somewhat successful in in making some connections and as a result it uh, it gets granted some more uh, resources in the form of food but you know the more you use the analogy the more it becomes um you know something that 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 becomes easier to talk about you know because if you if you've got you know you're just saying here uh, I created a whole bunch or I spawned a whole bunch of these creatures and they're uh, they're hunting around and this group of them or this uh, these bunch of individuals were more successful so um as a result of their successes they're um, they they have more sustenance and they start spawning new ones similar to themselves and that sort of stuff you know just to have a kind of a bacterial you know a petri dish analogy of uh, little problem solvers that are busy, um, you know, manipulating uh, vast amounts of data because we're talking about many millions of, of artifacts and, and much data around them and, and a lot of potential for connecting things up. You might imagine that, um, you know, th- what, what we're dealing with actually right now is, is all of Europe. So that's uh, that goes all the way to you know to Romania and Estonia and uh, Scandinavia is one of our main focuses at the moment, and um, there's uh, there's a lot of cultural data stored in all these places, um, although a lot of it is done in a not so standardized way. So that's one of the efforts of our company is to uh, uh, spread the you know, the open source goodness of uh, some software that will help them do this in a much more consistent and, and, and efficient way. But at the same time, there are lots of connections among artificial or sorry, among uh, cultural artifacts. For example, something stored at one uh, museum might be uh, related to something in the museum of another country. And if we can find these connections by virtue of, for example, the artists having been at the same time in the same place for a couple of years or something, you know, there's, there's all sorts of bizarre little ways to make connections among our uh, cultural artifacts. Even if sometimes these artificial life uh, creatures, uh, you know, refuse to make a decision and instead want to ask a question of a human, I can imagine them all sort of queuing up to ask some questions and then people more, uh, you know, people who have a lot of domain knowledge in the cultural heritage uh, area can, you know, just answer answer questions, at which point these agents could just dive back in or you could say delve back in and uh, and start searching for more uh, successes so that they can get some more food. I think it's a, really it makes a lot of sense. I mean, the idea that uh, the, artificial, the artificial life agents would almost create web form questionnaires for selected experts that they would then fill out and then fit back. I mean, no, there are, there are beautiful metaphors there, Gerald. And also the data set, the entirety of Europe in terms of these kind of, uh, these kind of artifacts, you're literally probably talking about, if not millions, hundreds of thousands of different items. Oh, no, we're talking definitely in the, in the, in the in many millions. And uh, we're, uh, we're, Focusing on uh, on Scandinavia right now, and for example, we went for a week to Norway uh, to uh, work with a, a cultural institution there, um, and um, they they have uh, quite detailed data on their cultural artifacts, uh, even including you know geographical information. And uh, so this, uh, the, the, you know, the more this data tells about these. Uh, artifacts, the more you have some really interesting experiences available. Like, uh, imagine taking a trip to, uh, you know, some uh, some neighborhood of Berlin or something like that, and uh, on your mobile phone, accessing what happened there, you know, 62 years ago. Yes, I can imagine probably a lot happened. Uh, 
<laughs> yeah, I, you know, but there's all sorts of uh, there's all sorts of interesting cultural artifacts in the form of you know books and documents and archives and records and and artworks and uh, and audio and whatever else. So you can actually really enrich uh, a tourist experience. Uh, you know, make it make it really say something to people instead of just looking at the surface of the place as it is right now. Instead, you'd sort of have a time machine at your disposal. So there's a real value to gathering this sort of information. Part of the motivation uh, around these parts is to uh, to get Europe working together. So you know any more any any uh, activities uh, you know in the cultural heritage domain across borders is seen as a good thing because if people are doing that sort of thing, they tend to to you know start wars a bit less frequently. Certainly, I mean the history of Europe in recent years has been pretty good in that regard. But it's interesting that you mention the notion of wars because there's almost a kind of cultural forensics aspect to what you're describing as well. I mean, obviously, the Second World War uh, was particularly, uh, I don't know, perturbatious, for want of a better term, in terms of moving cultural artifacts and these kind of things. But I'm sure, certainly through the Napoleonic period and and going back even further uh, in in European history, there were times where a number of artifacts were moved in a variety of different directions. Do you anticipate that you will almost have this kind of cultural forensic aspect to what you're doing as well? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure it's so so much forensics. It's uh, the way the way I see it. Actually, eventually uh, becoming you know a really rich resource is when uh, when like I said, it gives you a sort of a time machine. So you know, imagine you're you're just traveling around. You look at a building. Well, if if the if the metadata about these you know cultural artifacts are are accurate enough, you could more or less uh, you know based on your GPS position. Uh, discover that there's a story about this building, uh, you know, available, and it's, it was recorded way back in another time period, and and you can uh, you can experience that on the spot. So it really sort of it's potentially can really bring the world alive uh, by, you know, putting history right back right beside the the current world. So that that's I see that as a great potential. There's a whole bunch of other things that you could do with this stuff too. I mean, a lot of it is for research and 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 things like that. I see it also as a, a you know potentially a a collection of millions of meeting points. You know, just imagine if you are a, a researcher uh, in Finland or something, and you've uh, you've found a, a certain series of of artifacts, and and what do you know? Somebody in uh, you know, somebody in in Bulgaria has also been uh, frequenting those same cultural artifacts in in the you know, on the search engine, or you know, the, and and you can find you can find each other. There's a potential for collaboration and, and things like that. You know, these objects could be a way to find other people interested in similar things. Certainly, certainly, no, the the possibilities are limitless, and what you seem to be describing is really your own kind of imaginative traversing through the data set as you currently see it, but this is a fascinating project. It's wonderful, actually, to be able to talk with you about it, as, as we were initially talking about the Tetragotchi project, but this seems to be a, a, a similarly exciting and uh, very dynamic project for the future. So please, uh, when you next appear on Biota Live, please do give us an update associated with this work. Yes, I'd love to because uh, I, I'm really interested in, uh, and, and my colleagues as well who formed the company together with me are, are interested in taking this approach and uh, and using the, some artificial life uh, analogies, you know, if only for the for the purpose of bringing bringing it alive uh, in a way that lakes gives us, uh, you know, a new language to use to talk about, you know, even something as as basic as you know scheduling and resource management. You know, you could put it that way, but you could also put it in terms of feeding the little critters. So I, I would I prefer to use a an analogy that's a little more lively. Very interesting, very interesting. So uh, before, we, before we moved on this wonderful tangent, we were talking about the Tetragotchi timeline. I guess we were, yeah. in, <laughs> we were in June, I think, when... when yeah, uh, well, I, I, I worked on it very, uh, very intensely for, for quite a few months and, uh, and did a few podcasts, but uh, not that many. There were a lot of really interesting things to wrestle with. And um, I eventually uh, got it more or less... Um, working as I, I, uh, I had hoped and, uh, you know, still with a lot of open ends because, uh, in a way I really don't, couldn't imagine enough about it to, to be able to picture, you know, the degree to which it was playable by people, by a group of people. Cause that's the whole, 
the whole idea. It's an online multiplayer game. Um, so uh, eventually I set up to give this talk in Budapest, which was for this uh, conference of uh, the European skeptics. And it was it was interesting. It was not exactly the best place for me to present this thing, but uh, I got to tell you, it was very interesting as indeed to have all these skeptical people <laughs> looking at what I'm doing, because you know they were all uh, looking uh, looking at me and saying, "Wait, is this real evolution or, or is this bullshit?" You know, <laughs> it was so funny. <laughs> yes, looking at the other speakers actually at the conference, you certainly do. Uh... You certainly did provide a, a very uh, unique perspective, I think, on what the other folk were talking on. Yeah. Now, it was funny because, you know, in a way, my uh, my game and my efforts uh, in, in, you know, with uh, Darwin at Home and, and, and with Evolution, in a way, you know, it's, it plays into the, the, the skeptical movement in the sense that it gets people, uh, you know, primed for in, getting interested in understanding evolution. But on the other hand, the skeptical movement is more focused on, you know, expo exposing charlatans, and uh, these days they're very focused on uh, making sure that uh, homeopathic medicine doesn't get too legitimized, because it's also a bit of a, a, a hoax. Um, and, you know, there are a number of other issues as well that uh, are more relevant to our time, but you know, it, it all went back to the, to the times, uh, you know, some, some, some time ago. It's still, still happening, of course, but they're, you know, exposing people who are faking being, uh, clairvoyant and things like that. There's all sorts of, you know, people dowsing with, uh, with little, uh, little metal, uh, metal rods in their hands and, and so, and presumably able to find water. Well, you know, all, the whole idea of skepticism is to take a scientific approach to these things and do a double blind test and then be serious about the results that come in. Because, for example, these dowsers, they absolutely did not score better than anyone who was guessing. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of illusions out there in the world and, and, um, the skeptical movement is sort of like a, a, a team of bullshit fighters. Yes, I mean, you know, the interesting thing with homeopathy in particular, when I worked in the Bay Area and L.A. most recently, the, um, I don't even know what the term would be, but the, the woman who found me the jobs in the various locations I met uh, when I was in L.A., and she picked me up from the airport in a, a high-end BMW, and uh, we went out to to lunch I guess and she said oh yes yeah no this is my husband's car he's uh, head of homeopathic cures in Southern California and it's phenomenally lucrative it is oh, it's a it's it's an absolutely fantastic racket Tom it's fantastic <laughs> it, it, it's you couldn't couldn't be better off because you you basically guarantee to your clients that there's absolutely nothing in it and then you sell it to them for for a reasonable amount of money. It's the most brilliant racket. It's about 150 years old, and uh, uh, you know it just it just couldn't be better. But but uh, there's just one thing that people should be 100 percent secure with, and that is the idea that it is and is nothing more than placebo. So Very if you true. if you realize that, then that's fine. But if you if you try to deny that. Then you're in some very interesting territory because there's nothing whatsoever to scientifically back you up. So you, you know, it has to go on complete faith, you know, that, you know, in reality it works to some degree, but that's because it's placebo and placebo works to some degree. Yes, it's a very curious racket. I think it's something that uh, we could probably spend a, a whole biota live talking about in particular because I think there's a, yeah, a very curious element, and it's not just this country at all. I mean, Prince Charles et al. Uh, oh yeah, so. like they 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 really got on Prince Charles's case because he lent it some legitimacy that it should have never have gotten. Anyway, we're off topic again. <laughs> Completely off topic. I don't know if Prince Charles can lend any legitimacy to anything. But um, returning returning to Tetragocci. Yeah. So so uh, I had set up to give this talk at the at the Skeptics Conference in in Budapest, and that really motivated me to get uh, get my ass in gear and see if I could get this uh, Tetragocci program out there. And uh, so what I did was uh, the the timeline was I finally got it you know to a state where it was uh, it was not falling over very much and it seemed reasonably playable. So what I then did is I got a group of about six six uh, eight people 
friends of mine. Um, actually, I announced on the Greytham NL, uh, the, the Netherlands Greytham, which uh, seems to be the only one left, I suppose. The last Greytham standing. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we got a we got a nice, enthusiastic group of people out, and we we were all sitting around a table, and uh, and. Uh, and everybody was playing Petrogocci. The server was running on my laptop on another table far away. And uh, it was nice because it all worked uh, because there were there were three different operating systems there. Somebody had a Linux laptop. There were a bunch of Macs and there were a bunch of Windows machines. And, and it just worked in all these uh, scenarios, even, even in some machines that were not that, you know, modern. So that was good, and, and I got some really interesting feedback to start off with uh, there. And, I got, and, and then uh, shortly after that, I put it online, and shortly after that, I went to Budapest to give this talk. And uh, needless to say, after the talk, I got a bunch of Hungarians to sign up, <laughs> because uh, you know as soon as people see it, they think, oh, uh, might, might as well sign up to that. So I got a few people in the crowd to, uh, who were interested. And then um, after that, uh, I've been uh, I've given two more talks since then. One of them was for a group of uh, Java enthusiasts in Holland. We we formed this group for more than ten years ago, as, and uh, it's called the Java Knights. And uh, I give a presentation of uh, of the current state of affairs, gave a little demo, and then just uh, a week ago or so, I gave a talk at this uh, conference set up in Rotterdam called the Nationale Dag van de Zelforganisatie, which translated is the National Day of Self-Organization. So it's all about setting up, uh, you know, uh, organizations of people that self-organize rather than requiring sort of hierarchical management. But there's also a a search, of course, for the inspiration from where self-organization is mostly to be found and where it all comes from, from nature. So they invited me to uh, to give a talk about tetragotchi because the 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 evolution process that tetragotchi sort of visualizes and and brings home to the people uh, who are playing is uh, in a sense a, a formal self organization because the um, the 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 muscle contractions you know coordinate to achieve a purpose that they they can't understand themselves but they do coordinate with each other. So that was uh, that was quite nice. That was a well placed uh, you know a venue for me to give a to give a talk because I was uh, my focus was why do things self organize, you know, and and of course why do they self organize? They do they do so to survive. And I uh, talked about how evolution is kind of a collector of uh you know things that it stumbles across and the things that you could point out would be uh, elements of self-organization, you know, like uh, autocatalytic systems and, and things like that. Evolution finds them and and, and doesn't let them go. So uh, that was an interesting talk for sure. And uh, about 55 people have signed up now for Tetragotchi. There are, uh, there's more or less a handful of people who are playing it uh, quite regularly. And there are some who are really interested in, uh, and, and, uh, They've got a lot to say about it as well. So uh, I've been getting some really good feedback. It allowed me to make a few small changes, which didn't take a heck of a lot of work because I really only have weekends and and evenings nowadays. But uh, a few small changes, which made it a lot more playable and uh, tried some experiments and backed off on them. And so uh, I'm just, uh, you know, playing around a bit more, getting getting feedback, getting uh, some improvements in there. And I've got a bit of a scary list of to-dos, which I really should sort of knock off. And I'm a little bit hesitant to, uh, you know, to publish, uh, get too many people interested in it at the moment because uh, it's not quite, you know, refined enough. And uh, I'd rather have it really nice before uh, before I get large numbers of people involved. And it also has to prove itself for scaling up. Because uh, you know it, it could it could catch on, and in which case there may be thousands of people expecting oh, yes, it to do something. Yes. Well, this is probably the right point to for folks who are listening in who've never heard of Tetragotchi before. What, what does it look like? What do people get when they log on to the site, and what's the environment in general? Yeah. Well, what they uh, what they do when they get on the site is they they sign up and they get their their own personal launch file. It uses uh, the Java Web Start launch system. And uh, whenever whenever you click on that, it automatically signs you in, and you visit 
the planet, which is uh, something I always wanted to build, and I finally have built it and got it out there, and that is a spherical world for uh, for creatures to live in. I love the you know the the shape of the sphere and the, and this is finally a realization of it because the the tetragotchis actually live on the surface of this uh, planet and the planet I'm calling slow mo because um, everything happens there in very slow motion so uh, the the physics uh, sweeping which you know makes all the different things move ever so slightly every tick of the clock. Those uh, those sweeps, which would normally happen thousands of times a second to make a you know a nice fast animation, are happening uh, just once a second. So it's very slow, and so you've got this uh, this this reality on this planet which lives on my server, and it's tra- it's happening very slowly. But when you as a player log in, you get to experiment with multiple futures. And that's the whole uh, the whole trick of it here. You you receive the world frozen in place as it is on the server, so you get a you get a sight of a snapshot of how things are, and then from that point on you can um, you can run the evolution process, which which actually uh, gives you several different futures in parallel to each other, and and sort of pits them against each other, and the most successful future. Is is the ones that, you know the more successful the, the it is the bigger chance of its survival, and and it all is based on you know a genotype phenotype relationship and uh, you know the genes are mutating and the 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 the, the genetic patterns that happen to be successful in other words they create successful behavior in the phenotype they uh, they actually get replicated into the future so there's there's this whole process behind it. And um, uh, the the evolution process is is visualized, so people really get to see what's going on, and uh, and and that's that's something I was really uh, happy to be able to uh, finally get out there because I've had I, you know I've had programs online before, but there was always just you know the evolution happened sort of invisibly, and uh, you saw the results of it, but uh, in Tetragachi game you actually see all the uh, the evolution happening on on front of your nose. And um, there's uh, so you've got this planet. Uh, when you visit it, you can um, experiment with multiple parallel futures and uh, and evolve sort of you know so on the basis of uh, uh, demise of the weakest, which is uh, my version of survival of the fittest. And uh, you can see uh, see the improvements happen, and you can actually meet others and and uh, and capture them and stuff like that. So there's a there's a you know there's a different players interacting with each other in in some ways. Although it's it's quite limited, I'm going to be increasing that more. I'm going to make it uh, possible for people to search for each other more easily, and also probably I'll integrate something like a, a kind of a chat system so that when people are logged in they can they can chat with each other because i think you know there's uh th- there will be some interest in in people sort of discussing what they're experiencing right there on the spot and uh you know the nice thing about this whole process is i've finally got it out there i've got a you know a, a bunch of handfuls of people playing with it and some of them are quite serious about it and they've done a lot of stuff so i'm getting all sorts of information back about you know how playable is this and and what could it be done there's there's some people who are really good uh, offering some really good feedback you know really good ideas and and uh you know really really thought out you know they're they're playing it and they're uh they're they're deciding what what works and what doesn't, and you know they know as well as I do, or better probably, what does and what doesn't work. So uh, I'm uh, I'm happy to receive the, the the feedback and the discussion. In terms of the Tetragotchi system, do you have a kind of master controller interface that you can actually see everything that's going on and and navigate it aside from the game player interface? And I haven't built anything separate. Really, um, the the reality of the game right now is that any player can travel anywhere on the planet and sort of select another player and, in a sense, become them. Although you can't uh, you can't evolve them or anything like that, or you can't control them, but you can go down and visit them exactly where they are, and. Uh, and 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 you can look around and see what they're doing, and you can see them attacking each other and things like this. So you can actually zoom down to any place on the planet. Um, and you know, as you can imagine, if I can make this, uh, and I can make this quite easily searchable, 
you know, you could probably search for a particular person and then zoom down and see their tetragrachi in its current state and see what it's doing. So this this kind of thing is going to be uh, going to be easier as time goes on. And uh, so there's nothing I've got specially for me. The only thing that uh, that my uh, my player can do that other ones can't is uh, uh, I, I, I actually have a, a back door in there which I'm not using for the online one, but I was using for the demonstration. I can speed up time. <laughs> ah, so you have the time dial that you can twist if, if if need be. So that's very interesting. So in terms of your own tracking, you're tracking it just as a just as a regular player. No other means to. No other yeah, that's thing. exactly right. Very interesting. Very interesting. I'm a lurker on the Tetragotchi mailing list, uh, and I see a lot of correspondence from a number of familiar folk to, to buy it live, and also some new folks as well. In terms of your active users, do you think the contributors who are existing artificial life practitioners are giving you a different kind of contribution to regular users, or is it all basically part of the same feedback? I, as far as I know, the people who are working or who are in Tetragotchi world now and giving feedback are not artificial life practitioners themselves. Although, you know, Rudolf is uh, probably one of the most active people and he's been involved with Biota, but he, he couldn't really be called a practitioner. I've seen posts by Eric Burton and Scott Schaefer in... Yeah. Yeah, they, they've been, uh, yeah, there's been a bit of feedback from them as well, yeah. Not, not a lot, and it was a while ago, but... Uh, yeah, it's uh, there. There are a few. So, what kind of feedback are you getting, and what have been, you know, maybe the top three or four learning experiences that you've had through putting this out live and having active user feedback? Yeah, the, um, when I was going to give my talk uh, just a couple of weeks ago at the Java Nights gathering in uh, Utrecht in Holland, uh, which was just a you know a group of twenty guys or so sitting around and uh, we give each other talks and demos. Um, I really didn't have any kind of a presentation uh, ready, uh, but in the train on the way there, I got an email on the on the mailing list, which uh, which I thought was so special, I decided to read it uh, as my as the start of my presentation, and uh, and it really gives a, a clue as to uh, what's happening. So I, let me just give a little background for this. I um, Prompted by Rudolf's comments, I uh, I speeded up time, so I made it uh, five times as fast as it was. So he did some. Uh, he was playing with it uh, uh, in that way, and it was uh, it was functioning reasonably well. But some other people were not all that pleased with the with the speed up, and I also thought it was not quite the way things should be. So I slowed it down again. And anyway, he, so he was he was talking about this speed up and slowing down. And uh, Rudolf said uh, that, you know, if it slows back down to what it was, uh, he th I think many would lose interest if they have to wait that long. Think of the MTV generation, he said. So my reply to that was, I know, I know, I can't help but push the idea that this is a game that requires patience. Maybe the fast-paced generation will appreciate something that's a little more relaxed. And then came some really interesting feedback from a fellow who's got a tetragotchi, which he's called Winona. And, <laughs> and, you know, people name their tetragotchis. That's a good thing. <laughs> so anyway, he says, he says, I couldn't agree more. Evolution is not a fast-paced action activity. If you want a fast, if you want fast-paced, there are plenty of games out there to choose from. I rather like dropping in every once a day or so to see what's happening on slow-mo and setting Winona's tasks for the day and then getting on to something else. My 18-year-old son, who plays a lot of action games on the PS3, has shown a remarkable amount of interest in Winona's progress, and it has prompted him to ask me a lot of questions about selection for fitness and how that relates to life, uh, how, how life is developed on the planet. And this has been a lot more stimulating than the discussions we've had after a game of Call of Duty. The notion that young people have a very short attention span and require instant gratification is largely a myth perpetuated by various media, and in my experience, most young people I know feel insulted and patronized by MTV and other sources of instant gratification media. My son also suggested that Tetragotchi would make a perfect iPhone or Android application oh, so he could check up whenever he had some free time on the train and he could see, set himself an alarm for when something potentially important is about to happen in slow-mo. I think I'd like that myself. So this was the, this was the kind of feedback I've got. And I know a number of people who program uh, Android and 
and some, you know, some iPhone programmers. And who knows, there's maybe some potential, at least for, I wouldn't want to evolve on the phone because you'd burn out your, your battery too quickly, but you could visit and you could give instructions and, and things like that. And you could uh, do the evolution on your PC. So that's an interesting point. There is, there is a clear delineation from what you're describing in terms of the PC itself still being used for the evolution component versus the servers. In terms of your own thinking of load balancing, that was obviously clearly a very conscious decision. Do you think there's potential in the future if you launch a, a mobile app in particular to do more of the evolution on the servers? Well, the whole idea of Darwin at Home, of course, was to somewhat uh, mirror the idea of, uh, of uh, SETI at Home and uh, Folding at Home and that sort of project where you know, you're trying to get the the volume of computation by delegating it to large numbers of people. So that's that's one of the things behind it. Um, I'm not necessarily ready to spend a lot of money on a whole grid of computers doing evolving, but it certainly could happen. It's just not uh, not something that I can I can finance right now or that I would want to finance. You know, part of the uh, the charm of this whole Tetragachi game is is that. You know, people are lending their computers and they're watching the evolution happen. And uh, only the genes of the successful uh, um, phenotypes actually are communicated back to the server. Nothing else comes back. So, you know, the you, when you play the game, you get a snapshot of the entire reality to your own little uh, client on your PC. But whenever you do an evolution uh, uh, episode, only the successful genes go back to the server. So it's it's an interesting metaphor, and I'm not sure, you know, it could all be done, of course, on servers, but what's what's the fun in that? Hmm. But, I mean, the idea of uh, if, if you had a, a mobile app, maybe the, maybe the creatures would be sufficiently smaller or have a smaller genotype. There might be ways that you could minimize the processor and also almost introduce a, a different species into slow-mo. Of, of the mobile users, maybe they could be like little gnats well, or something. The, the way the way it is right now, uh, things are quite minimal. I mean, uh, it's uh, there, there's uh, like for example, when you when you log into the game, you get a copy of the entire universe to your PC. Everything, you know, every Tetragachi on the whole planet comes in. I might have to change that soon if the number of people uh, gets too large. And I probably will actually, but for now, I'm just you know just for simplicity's sake, I'm I'm transporting every single one of them. So is, they only consist of coordinates and genes and a couple of you know some status information. Uh, so in effect, these these Tetragachi bodies are are as minimal as you can pretty well get. You know they they don't contain anything but the but what they absolutely need. So there's nothing really holding it back from from putting it onto a mobile device. It's just that uh, evolution in this context involves playing out physics, you know, where, where there's a lot of floating point op uh, operations going on in order to, you know, to determine which one is more successful and which one is less successful on the basis of, you know, how they, how far they've traveled towards the goal that you've given them. So there's just a hell of a lot of just number crunching, to get, you know, any any result out of the evolution, and I'm just not sure that phones at the moment are the thing you'd want to do that with because because of the fact that they're battery operated. That's that's really what the the core of it is. Anything you can plug in, okay. But if it's if it's battery operated, I wouldn't really want to. There's a lot of you know you could say gratuitous calculation that goes on just to uh, just to do some evolution. It. it me, yeah, I don't know. I wouldn't want to burn out my phone doing it. Although, it does make sense to, uh, it, it, to you know, to visit your Tetragachi from your mobile phone. That would be fabulous if I could get it to do that. And uh, that, that's one thing. And, and there's a potential, of course, to do some modicum of uh, evolution, you know, on the server. But because the numbers are large, you know, in theory, you know, you could have large numbers of Tetragachis on one planet. You know, suppose there were a thousand, then I would have to uh, evolve, uh, you know, go through the evolution episodes for a thousand different creatures. That's just a lot of number crunching on the server, and I haven't got the servers available for that. Mm. I guess there are two parts to this. The first 
is potentially utilizing some of the even even cell phone based uh, GPU mathematical optimization and potentially farming some of the processing out to uh, a GPU. But the second part is, and this goes in parallel with some of the EvoGrid discussion. Bruce Damer, uh, after Thanksgiving, he and Peter Newman are going to uh, University of California, San Diego, I believe, to install the EvoGrid on uh, one of their server networks. And I think increasingly, I mean, through the EvoGrid, Bruce, although it's all very heavily EvoGrid branded, but uh, Bruce is certainly making contacts in the contacts in the, I don't know what you'd call them, uh, the distributed computing community. Let's call it that. And I think the potential is that other artificial life developers could. Uh, potentially utilize some of this as well. Uh, obviously, communication with Bruce and this kind of negotiation would need to ensue, but uh, it sounds like what you're describing is that you are developing very much a distributed model for Tetragotchi currently. It's just a lot of the distribution has the individual players doing a lot of the computation. As you're developing this, and particularly as you talk about the potential for thousands of users to pick it up, are you thinking about the kind of distributed problems that will be occurring in the future, and what are you doing to, to tackle these issues currently? Well, it's not uh, – I haven't been thinking in terms of peer-to-peer or something like that. That would introduce a lot of uh, a lot of interesting challenges in itself, and I'm not really going to go that direction. Right now, it's, uh, it's fairly straightforward. Uh, it's kind of a hub-and-spoke model, although the whole thing is open source and extremely lightweight. Like, there's not even a database involved. It does everything uh, just with the file system. So uh, it wouldn't be a, a stretch at all to imagine – uh, you know, hundreds of different servers running a slow-mo and somehow uh, being able to, uh, you know, transport yourself perhaps from one place to another uh, as, a, as a tetragotchi because all of these things can be, can be transported. So there's, there's more, uh, the, the thing I would consider more sort of, uh, within reach would be something where the servers are federated in some way, but not necessarily that it's all completely peer to peer. So, um, I haven't really worried too much about the networking, uh, the the distributed systems, uh, because the model right now is fairly straightforward, hub and spoke. So you know, once it's once the whole thing is you know that a federation of planets rather than just one <laughs> to boldly go, you know that that's when uh, that's when it gets a little more interesting. I can I would love to if if anybody's interested in uh, in looking into how this could be done, that would be uh, you know, be fun. Very interesting. And the Darth Vader Tetragotchi seems like the, uh, the next choice. So in terms of the open source nature of this, is all the source code out there for, for people to pick up or is some of it still being released slowly? Oh, no, it's all out there. It's on Google Code. I haven't been putting too much effort into, uh, into maintaining it because I haven't really got other people, uh, more than more than just a handful of people looking at the code. So... Uh, I have been seriously considering, and I probably will in a, in a short while sort of refactor the code to make it a lot more, uh, palatable. I mean, uh, as far as just, just structuring and naming things and stuff like that. It, it's actually quite nice now, but it could be, it could be a bit more sort of oriented to the word tetragotchi and the whole theme of it. And um, I was thinking of putting it on GitHub so people could uh, play with it a little more easily because all of the stuff we're doing for that new uh, company of ours called Delving, we're doing it all on GitHub. So I'm getting used to using Git and uh, quite enjoying it. So I'm probably going to put something on there, uh, you know, in the first part of next year. But... Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's 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 definitely available from start to finish. Uh, when I uh, when I fix a bug or when I add a feature, I commit it to the to the Google Code Subversion repository, so anybody can get a hold of it the next time they do an update. And uh, I've set it all up with uh, you know it's it's pure Java, so that makes uh, makes life easier in some respects as far as you know not worrying which platform you're on. And I've also set it up with uh, with all sorts of build files and things like that, so that there's uh, essentially there's there's four modules and they're all Maven. Uh, they're set up with Maven, so that you can basically say uh, fire it up and install it and, and and go for it. There's not too much of a, a threshold, although I haven't been completely uh, documenting it for people so to make it really easy, but. Uh, that that you know that's quite also very much within reach. It's more or less you know check out the code and run the build and go. Very good, very good. 
Well, I understand that you listened to the recent Tim Taylor Biota Live with, with some interest. In terms of his vision of individual web pages being artificial life agents, do you see this as being part of the Tetragotchi paradigm, or do you think that there's some more that you could do potentially to embody some of Tim Taylor's vision? Well, I was, uh, I was listening to that. I think it was in the rain on the bicycle, and I was uh, very fascinated by the, whole, by the whole thing. Um, because the ideas, you know, it, it, it does seem, uh, related in some way, or it does seem something that, uh, it seemed to be something that's, that's, uh, at least in the, in the same ballpark. And, um, you know, the thing that, that I'm sort of stuck with, uh, the thing that, that, uh, is a challenge for, for my stuff is the simple fact that there's a lot of number crunching involved to do with, with doing the evolution. So I can't really, um, have too much of it done in, in, uh, script languages like, uh, like JavaScript, because I think the efficiency would just not be, uh, up to par, but, but having, um, anything that would make this stuff more easily, uh, you know, uh, um, available to people. Like if it were just a web page, if you could just go to a page and boom, your tetrapot, tetragotchi would appear in, you know, some sort of magical, um, uh, hardware accelerated um, uh, HTML5 canvas or something like that. You know that that it would just the, the page would appear, your Tetragotchi would appear, and you'd be able to cruise around, and that would be absolutely phenomenal. Like right now, it's uh, it's not hard. You know, you have to, but you do have to run the the Java virtual machine on your computer, and uh, it's not easy, not hard to install all that, but it's still, you know, a couple of steps. Whereas if it were just a web page, then uh, and with HTML5 or something, when that takes hold, then um, then that would be absolutely a cat's meow. And you can also imagine it uh, being easily integrated into something like, you know, Facebook or these other other social networks. Then then there's a potential for it to really go big. Fascinating, fascinating. Yes, I think he, he, Tim set the bar very high, but also got people such as yourself thinking very strongly about the the, the paradigm as he described it. Because no, anything, anything you can do, I mean, if Tim's able to get anything done, I know the way he was talking about it, it was quite speculative, but when he was, uh, the, the way he was talking about it, I, I, I tuned into it right away because anything you can do on, on, a, on a, on a completely easily, uh, you know, as a sort of a zero setup scenario where you can get people, you know, just clicking on a page and then they're participating. Uh, and that's what it seems like he was talking about. There, there's a there's a huge potential for for setting up some sort of uh, artificial life thing based on on that scenario because uh, you could you could really have huge numbers all of all of a sudden. So you know the substrate for your artificial life could be uh, could be quite suddenly quite large. So that's uh, there's a real potential there. It, it might not be exactly the same kind of thing as, as Tetragotchi is, but I'm sure there's. Uh, there are things that can be invented, and Tim's racking his brains to do it now, and uh, I wish him luck. Sounds great. It does. It does, definitely. Well, Gerald, I'd like to thank you for the chance once again to catch up. It, it seems like it's been far too long since you last appeared on a Biota Live, and that, in part it's my fault as well, because I haven't been recording them quite as frequently as I had through previous years, but as I described, uh, the Dick Gordon book projects and FreshSim.org and various other things have been taking my time as well. But uh, it's it's a pleasure as always to to have you on Biota Live. What is aside from Tim Taylor? What's your general sense of the artificial life community and, and the directions that it could be going in the future? Um, I don't know. I haven't heard too much. Uh, some uh, you know surprising new directions in the, in the last while. Uh, I, I really did enjoy the talk with Tim for sure. Uh, I don't know. There's uh, there, there's probably a lot like we discussed before. There's probably a lot of artificial life or artificial life like things that are that are happening, but not you know understood under that name. So. Uh, I think you know scaring some of those those things out of their their hiding places would be uh, would be interesting if people you know could just uh, come up and and you know describe what they're doing uh, you know their their artificial life like projects I'm, I'm sure there's a bunch out there that we haven't seen yet. I agree. I agree. Yes, it's the responsibility, I guess, of the community to keep their eyes open and flag them where they are applicable and certainly invite them on Biota Podcasts or get them contributing to uh, the general dialogue. And similarly, I think we can also uh, 
form almost uh, virtual welcome baskets to the artificial life community. And maybe the, this, yeah. these book series or uh, fresh sim or these other things will work to that uh, to that end too. Thank yeah, you. I'm feeling I'm feeling quite guilty of the the fact that I haven't been communicating much about what I've been doing. Uh, but there's just you know there's just oh, there's just enough time to get the get the actual code working because that takes a lot of work, especially when you're talking about it. You know, when you're setting up a multi-user online game, you wouldn't believe what can go wrong when you're when you're online and you're multiplayer. It's it's quite uh, quite remarkable how that ups the ante. And so I haven't been communicating enough of it out. I, f- I feel guilty about that, also not being on on Bayro Live for such a long time. But you know, the things are happening, so there's a lot more to talk about when we de- when we get to talk to- again. So that's a good thing. Very good, Gerald. Well, thank you once again for the chance to to chat with you today. It's been an absolute pleasure, and let's hope it isn't, uh, I guess, eight months till, until our next chat. I'll talk to you soon, Gerald. Take care. Alrighty. Bye bye.